Welcome to our Diabetic Retinopathy and Business of Life seminar here at Braille Institute. We're so happy that you're here, and some people might be coming in, uh, but we're going to start our seminar right now. Good, I know. What What's holding us up, right? <laughs> um, and for all of you, just as a little housekeeping, for all of you who have reservations for your lunch today, it's across the way, it's across the courtyard, and people will direct you to the cafeteria, okay? Right. But that's for those of you, you have to have a reservation for that lunch. No, no, you already have had to do that. <laughs> it's on the flyer. Anyway, um, and then after the uh, seminar, we have a, a technology and resource fair that will be in the north room, which is to your left, and in the lobby. We also have a raffle that's going to happen here today that we hope you all signed up for, those of you who are visually impaired. So it's going to be a fun day, and now I'd like to introduce the Director of Marketing and PR, Courtney Kessel. Uh, good morning, everyone. How's everyone today? I know you're anxious to get started. Um, as Carmen said, my name is Courtney Castle. I'm the Director of Marketing and Public Relations here at Braille Institute in our Public Education Department. And it's my distinct pleasure to welcome you all here today for our annual seminar on diabetes and diabetic retinopathy. Um, before we begin, I just want to give a simple reminder to turn off all of your cell phones and any other electronic devices that might go off during the seminar, um, just to make sure that everyone else can enjoy and hear what the doctors are saying. Um, if you've not already done so, we invite you to sign up to receive a CD of today's seminar sent to you free of charge, and you can sign up in the lobby with one of our volunteers during the break. Um, as you may have heard, thanks to our partnership with technology company Enhanced Vision, we'll be having a special drawing at the end of today's seminar. Now, you must be present to win, but the drawing is for a Pebble handheld magnifier valued at $600. So it's a great device. Um, you can take it anywhere with you. It's small and compact. And once again, if you haven't signed up to enter the drawing, there'll be volunteers in the lobby during the break, and you can sign up then. Um, at the conclusion of the seminar at noon, we invite you to visit next door. In our exhibit hall, we're going to have our Business of Living Community Resource Fair, and it will feature the latest technology for people with low vision, as well as some free resources and information from some of our business and community partners. So please do um, join us in the exhibit hall, and the fair goes from noon to 1.30. Um, it is now my distinct pleasure to introduce and welcome to Braille Institute our first speaker for the day, Dr. Kent Small, a retina and vitreous surgeon, is president and director of the Macula and Retina Institute at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and also has an independent practice in Glendale. Dr. Small has authored a variety of medical papers and has been the recipient of research grants from the National Institutes of Health, the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and the Muscular Dystrophy Association. His work has been published in more than 200 research publications. Dr. Small's medical mission work has taken him all over the world, including a recent trip to Tonga, where he treated more than 100 diabetics. He's been a great friend to Braille Institute for many, many years, and we're happy to welcome him back today to share with you the latest research and information on diabetic retinopathy treatment. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Kent Small. Well, thank you, Courtney. And I can't say how um, excited and, and happy I am to be here today at the Braille Institute. It's a beautiful day today, and it's so good seeing old friends, Carmen and Leslie and others here at the Braille Institute. I love this place. 
the work that goes on here is remarkable. Um, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, diabetes in general, a little bit, diabetic retinopathy, the standard treatments for diabetic retinopathy, and then some of the new research going on in diabetic retinopathy. And then we'll open it up to some question and answer uh, period. <clears throat> Most of my talk is really to, some of it's going to be fairly superficial, and it's basically just to stimulate some conversation and questions. Well, diabetes um, in America is a, as our healthcare system and our, the HHS realizes, is a uh, significant uh, uh, problem in the U.S. 8% um, of the American population are diabetic. 30% are probably undiagnosed. So there's a huge lack of diagnosis of di diabetes in this country, despite all of our technology. Um, so 8% of the American population, that number alone does not sound like a very large number, but that's over 24 million Americans. So it's a significant, significant health problem for our, our government. The incidence of diabetes has, since 1980 has tripled in the U.S. and in all countries across around the world, which is kind of interesting um, <clears throat> in that there does not seem to be the increasing incidence of diabetes worldwide doesn't seem to be so socioeconomically driven or technology driven or whatever, but it's tripled. It's tripled since 1980 around the world. Um, we think that this is primarily due to a change in diet, exercise, lifestyle, and life expectancy, because certainly age is one of the risk factors for development of diabetes. The change in diet, uh, just to put a, uh, a, a plug-in, not a plug, but a, an anti-plug, I guess, for high fructose corn syrup, it's from the devil, okay? When you look at your bottles of exercise drinks or any kind of little fruit drinky thing, if it says high fructose corn syrup on there, that's, that's, it's evil. And <laughs> it is. It's evil. It's evil stuff. And there's a whole corn industry behind it, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but high, you know, your kids are sitting down, and after they come home from school, or sitting in front of the TV, they're slamming these, you know, power drinks, and and Gatorade type drinks, you know, these power drinks, and all of them are just loaded with high fructose corn syrup. And there's a one hypothesis is that just the consumption of these types of foods that are loaded with high fructose corn syrup is one of the contributing factors to the, the increasing incidence of diabetes in, in the U.S. and around the world. Um, so the factors that are, that are influencing the incidence of diabetes and prevalence in America, um, other than diet, number one is age. Um, and so we're seeing also an increasing incidence of diabetes in, this, in the U.S. because we're living longer now. Our cardiologists are better at helping us live longer. We're coming up with better medications. And so our life expectancy is increasing. And the incidence and risk of developing diabetes increases with age, period. Your pancreas, you know, diabetes is a problem with insulin and insulin management. Either your pancreas is not making enough insulin, which is typically your type 1 diabetic, or your body is resistant to the insulin that your body does make, uh, and that's type 2 diabetes, um, which generally tends to be more associated with uh, weight problems. So number one is age. Number two is ethnicity. And exactly why there's differences between different ethnic groups, we don't 
truly understand that completely. Part of it's genetics, part of it may be lifestyle. But certainly the incidence of diabetes in your average Caucasian American is about 8%. Latino, it's 20%. Pacific Islanders and Pima Indians, 50%. And so there's some huge differences in the incidence of diabetes just based on your ethnicity. Now, so far we've talked about two risk factors which you have no control over, your age and your ethnicity, or genetics. You can't pick your parents. Um, socioeconomic factors, are th there's mixed issues on that, and it's actually surprising that most of the studies show that uh, the more wealthy people are, the greater their likelihood of developing diabetes, which is kind of counterintuitive. But I guess the more money you have, the more you eat, and the more you put on weight and don't go to the gym. I don't know. Um, so increasing body mass index, weight, obesity, is a huge risk factor. Sedentary lifestyle. And uh, Courtney mentioned that I had uh, recently done a medical mission trip to Tonga, which is a, a small island group in the South Pacific. Uh, they have one of the highest incidence of diabetes in the world. They also have the highest body mass index in the world. Number two was Fiji. And uh, they're actually, and uh, the, the World Cup of uh, rugby is usually winds up being between Fiji and Tonga. And last year, Tonga lost to Fiji, and there's quite a bit of uh, uh, animosity about that. Of course, back 200 years ago, these, these island groups actually warred against each other quite a bit. So there's animosity between these two island groups that goes way back. But nonetheless, they, can, they think, now, when I, while I was there, I saw spam on every counter in every store. And spam, basically, you know, the American troops brought spam and introduced it to the South Pacific during World War II. And most of these island groups and, and, and ethnicities uh, really embraced it and uh, still enjoy it today. So I'm sure that's a contributing factor. The other contributing factor is when I was there for this medical mission trip, there were several other people with me who had been there uh, five years previous. And one of the things they all commented on was how many more cars there are there now than there used to be. So basically the Tongans used to walk everywhere. They got their exercise. They got their cardiovascular workout. Now <clears throat> yeah, basically the major income for Tonga is actually remittance. Kids grow up. They go to Australia or wherever, get an education. They stay there. They get a job. They send money back. And along with that money, they're sending cars back. So now people aren't walking. They're driving everywhere, even though it's only, you know, I mean, most of the islands aren't big enough to drive more than three miles. But um, So lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle increases the risk for diabetes. And then, of course, um, body mass index, which is a euphemism for obesity. Um, Weight is, is the major contributor for type 2 diabetics, which is the insulin-resistant diabetics. Now, a little bit about the epidemiology of um, diabetic retinopathy. If you have diabetes, compared to a non-diabetic, you, your risk of vision impairment is five times that of the average population. That's a huge number. That's 500%. Um, Diabetes, diabetic retinopathy, accounts for about 10% of all adult visual impairment. And uh, it's, of course, higher in older Americans. 
So the older you are, the increase, the greater your increased risk for uh, vision impairment from diabetic retinopathy. So the number, so number one risk for diabetic retinopathy is, is age. Number two is duration of diabetes. This is another factor which you can't really control. The longer you have diabetes, the more likely you're going you're to develop diabetic retinopathy. And if you're type 1, within, if you've had diabetes for uh, 10 years, you have a 90% chance of developing diabetic retinopathy within 10 years, type 1 diabetics, which are typically your younger age onset, juvenile onset diabetics. Um, if you're a type 2 diabetic, the numbers aren't quite so bad. It's around 75 to 80%. But still, almost everybody with diabetes gets some form of diabetic retinopathy at some point. And then, again, the ethnicity thing. Oh, one of the, one of the interesting things about ethnicity, there are groups that have a lower incidence of diabetic retinopathy. Uh, Southeast Asians, for instance. Um, and again, you know, you, if you look at their dietary lifestyle and such, you know, kind of primarily vegetarian, um, very healthy kind of lifestyles, um, you have a decreased risk of developing diabetic retinopathy. And again, for you know, one of the higher groups in our country for developing diabetic retinopathy is, again, the Latino and African-American communities. Um, there are two clinical manifestations of diabetic retinopathy that we deal with primarily, proliferative diabetic retinopathy and non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy or the other word for it or name for it is background diabetic retinopathy. Now, these names came out of studies that were done about 25 years ago. This is actually an interesting side point. Most, of, uh, most pharmaceuticals, most drugs that are developed in this country nowadays, you, know, you have to go through clinical trials. The first ever performed international clinical prospective randomized multicentered controlled trial was done on diabetic retinopathy about 25, 30 years ago. It was called the DRS, Diabetic Retinopathy Study Trial. And it was basically to evaluate, lasers were fairly new on, this, on the medical scene. Ophthalmology was the first specialty to start using lasers in medicine about mm, 35 years ago. And, you know, we had this new tool and we we're trying to figure out how to use it. And anyway, make a long story short, this study showed that laser photocoagulation, laser treatments for diabetic retinopathy is beneficial. And that was the very first multi-centered prospective controlled trial in the world. It was on diabetics and ophthalmology. Many, many other specialties and, of course, other countries and other healthcare systems have adopted that uh, system of studies in order to get drugs approved by the FDA and through their own government systems. Um, So there's the proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Proliferative means growth. And, and when we're talking about diabetic retinopathy, we're talking about blood vessel growth. You know, the blood sugar damages blood vessels. They, blood, they damage blood vessels throughout your entire body. The retina in the back of the eye is one, if not the only place where we can directly see that damage going on. And, you know, the, I occasionally I have patients come in saying, you know, I examine them and they, they pull back and they say, well, Dr. Small, can you see my thoughts? Can you see what I ate yesterday? Can you, you know, it's not, it's not quite that good, but it's pretty good. We can see a lot in the back of the eye about a person. 
and what they're doing and what they're not doing. And we can see that blood vessel damage in the retina long before they start having problems, before the blood vessels in the kidneys get damaged, before the blood vessels in the feet get damaged, or the blood vessels in the heart get damaged. So the the retina is a, is a good barometer of what's going on throughout your entire body, what we see with the blood vessels in your retina. So we see that damage fairly early on in diabetics. And sometimes we as ophthalmologists, as retina specialists, sometimes are the first people to diagnose that, that, that the person has diabetes. Um, so proliferative diabetic retinopathy is, is abnormal blood vessel growth. Basically, the blood sugar damages the blood vessels in the retina. The blood vessels close. They occlude. And so the retina tries to heal this by growing new blood vessels, which sounds like a good thing. However, these new blood vessels are fragile. They break, they bleed, and they cause scar tissue. And with all that blindness, I mean, it, it's, sometimes it's pretty ugly. The other type, and uh, proliferative diabetic retinopathy tends to occur more in, more in type 1 diabetics, uh, the juvenile or early age onset, the ones who don't make enough insulin in their pancreas. The type 2 diabetics um, are, the, are typically the insulin-resistant, the older age-onset diabetics. And in that group, generally we see the other manifestation first, which is background diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema. Now, the macula is a special part of the retina. You know, the retina is the film in the camera, and the light's focusing, coming into the eye and being focused by the lens and the cornea on the retina. And the macula is the most sensitive area of the retina, right in the center. It's a little five-millimeter segment of the retina. And that's where the 2020 vision is. And in developed cultures and in, for humans, that's, that's kind of the most important part of our, our vision. Um, that's your reading vision, your driving vision, your fine, detailed vision. So diabetic macular edema, basically the blood vessels get damaged again, but they don't necessarily close or occlude. They then become seepy. They leak. They don't hold the plasma and the blood in, so it seeps out into the tissue in the macula and causes the macula and the retina to swell. And with that, it then doesn't function or doesn't function well. And so with diabetic macular edema, well, let's back up, because you know, the word macula gets thrown around a lot. The other place that people hear the word macula is with age-related macular degeneration, which is a leading cause of blindness in this country. Um, diabetic macular edema is a totally different beast than age-related macular degeneration. It's the same piece of tissue that's affected, but it's affected in a different way. So the symptoms of diabetic macular edema can be fairly similar to age-related macular degeneration, which is basically loss of the central vision, blurred vision in the center, or distortion. Now, with the visual impairment that is caused by diabetic retinopathy, there's um, a lot of socioeconomic issues revolving around this that our government is and others are interested in. You know, it impacts directly on the medical care costs, lost wages, lost productivity. Um, diabetes, like we said, accounts for about 8% of the American population, but it accounts for 20% of our health care costs in this country. So diabetes is disproportionately more costly to Medicare, healthcare, government, insurance companies than is um, other diseases in general. One estimate is, is that diabetes, uh, the expense of diabetes is about $50,000 a year on average. And <clears throat> 
So let's talk about some of the things that, that you can control in diabetes that does have, in good clinical trials, have been shown to decrease your risk for vision loss from diabetic retinopathy. It's basically controlling blood sugar, blood pressure, weight, and cholesterol. And it all makes sense. And this has been shown in several trials in this country and in the UK. Number one, controlling blood sugar. The better you control your blood sugar, the, the better the odds are that you will preserve your vision. Now, I have patients that say, oh, Dr. Small, you know, last week I now have my blood sugar under perfect control. Therefore, my diabetic retinopathy should be no longer a problem. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It's about risk. Once diabetic retinopathy starts, it's a snowball, and then it's rolling down this hill, and it's hard to stop. So once you develop diabetic retinopathy, even though you control your blood sugar perfectly, the diabetic retinopathy can still get worse. But by controlling your glucose, your blood sugar, you are more likely to preserve your vision. So it puts the odds more in your favor, but it's not a guarantee. Matter of fact, there are patients that um, have you know, with diabetic retinopathy, the blood vessel damage in the retina, by the time we see that, there's some damage occurring in the kidneys. And a fair number of patients have to get kidney transplants. Nowadays, in addition to doing the kidney, a lot of times they're doing a pancreas transplant. And if the pancreas transplant is successful, it totally normalizes the blood sugar. It's like you never had diabetes, except for the fact that the damage in the retina, the retinal blood vessels, is already done. And most people that have had kidney and pancreas transplants already have such severe damage in their retina from the diabetic retinopathy, there's no reversing it. But you can still control it. And it can still, even though your blood sugar is totally normal after a pancreas transplant, the diabetic retinopathy still can get worse. So it still has to be monitored and treated periodically. So the, the best indicator, and I try to ask all my diabetic patients this, what is your hemoglobin A1C? How many diabetics in here know what their hemoglobin A1C is? Everybody should know what their hemoglobin A1C is. It's an indicator, it's a blood test that your, your doctor, your general practitioner, your endocrinologist should be getting on you about every three or four months. And it, it's an indication of how well you've been c controlling your blood sugar on average for the previous three months. Um, and if your hemoglobin A1C is less than seven, you're doing a pretty good job. 6.5 is better, of course. But if you can keep it 7 or less, you're, yeah, that's, that's commendable. Um, if your hemoglobin A1C is up around, and the good studies have shown this, you know, if your hemoglobin A1C is up around 9 or 10, your risk for developing diabetic retinopathy and severe complications from diabetic retinopathy goes way up. So everybody needs to know their hemoglobin A1C, and you need to control your blood sugar. And there's multiple, you know, you've got to work closely with your, with your internist and your endocrinologist. Number two is controlling blood pressure. Blood pressure and diabetes kind of go hand in hand, and they exacerbate each other. Um, so better control of blood pressure means you're more likely to preserve your vision and prevent diabetic retinopathy from, from being a problem. Controlling cholesterol is another issue. When, particularly in background diabetic retinopathy, where the blood vessels are just kind of injured but not closed, they're not totally occluded, and it's leaking the serum and protein and lipid into the retina. Well, that lipid is cholesterol, and we see that in your retina when we examine your eyes. And if we see that, we know there's a lot of leakage going on and it needs to be treated. 
And there have been some studies showing that if you can drop, if you can, with medication usually, because diet alone, trying to drop your cholesterol with diet alone is really tough. Uh, it just, on average, it only drops at maybe 10 points. So if you have high cholesterol, most people need to go on some, some medication, Lipitor or whatever. Um, I'm on Pravacol. I put myself on Pravacol. My doctor wouldn't do it. But keeping your cholesterol down is good. Um, and then weight. And I've had patients who, uh, you know, or, you know, overweight, and they lose, you know, 50 pounds or whatever, and some of them can go off of insulin and just go on pills. Some of them get off their pills, their oral hypoglycemic agents. So controlling weight is really, really, really huge, particularly for the late-onset diabetics. Um, some other risk factors. So those are the four major risk factors that you as a patient and as a family member can help control. Blood sugar, blood pressure, weight, and cholesterol. There are some other oh, uh, issues that um, are potentially controllable. Smoking. No diabetic should even think about smoking. Smoking is like throwing fuel on a fire. Um, it's, it, it increases your risk for macular degeneration. It increases your risk for diabetic retinopathy and blindness from diabetic retinopathy. Smoking is, is uh, actually, if, I had to, if we have an evil meter, you know, we mentioned high fructose corn syrup. Smoking's worse. You know, I mean, quite a bit worse than high fructose corn syrup. But it's way up there. So no smoking. Um, one of the other factors that can make diabetic retinopathy worse is pregnancy. Some of the hormonal changes that go on during pregnancy can exacerbate diabetic retinopathy. Um, and you just basically, if, you get, if you're diabetic and you are pregnant, or thinking about being pregnant, you just need to be monitored very, very, very closely. And usually once, and we've seen this, patients that develop diabetic retinopathy during pregnancy, as soon as they, well, not as soon as they deliver, but within a month of delivery, their diabetic retinopathy can actually regress. Um, so the manifestations that we, you know, the two big Problems in the eye for diabetic retinopathy is background diabetic retinopathy, which is leakage and swelling in the macula, and proliferative diabetic retinopathy. With a proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the other thing that we deal with is a, is a hemorrhage. These blood vessels, they break, they bleed. And uh, when they bleed bad enough, then it causes scar tissue to form on the surface of the retina. Well, the retina has a consistency of wet tissue paper. And so the scar tissue forms, and like scar tissue anywhere else, it contracts. And when it contracts, it pulls the retina off. It pulls holes and tears in the retina. And then you have a retinal detachment. Then you've really got some problems. Um, the other thing that can happen, the, when there's bad blood flow in the retina from the diabetes, it can stimulate an abnormal blood, ve blood vessel growth in the front of the eye on the iris, which can then cause a very severe type of glaucoma that's very difficult to control, called rubiotic glaucoma or neovascular glaucoma. Uh, diabetics are also, in uh, diabetic retinopathy aside, diabetics are at increased risk for glaucoma, and that needs to be monitored periodically and routinely. And diabetics also uh, get cataracts at a younger age than non-diabetics. So those are kind of the major issues that we deal with from an eye perspective in diabetes. Well, how do we treat this stuff? Um, based on that study I told you back 35 years ago, the DRS, the Diabetic Retinopathy Study, 
laser treatments are still kind of, it's still one of the mainstays of treating diabetic retinopathy. It's been around for a long time. It works. It doesn't eliminate your risk. Basically, the diabetic retinopathy study showed that laser treatment, basically once a person reached a certain level of severity of diabetic retinopathy, we knew from the natural history there was a 30% chance of these patients going blind within two years. The laser decreased that chance from, from 30% down to about 10 with our current technology, it's probably down to about 5 5% now. So it doesn't eliminate the risk. It just puts the odds more in your favor for a good outcome and maintaining your vision. There are two different types of laser treatments we do in diabetics, basically for the two different types of manifestations of diabetic retinopathy, the pluripitive and the background. Background diabetic retinopathy, again, it's the swelling in the macula. We treat that with a laser. It's a kind of a light grid. We call it a grid. It's a very light scattering of laser around little leaky spots in the retina. Um, and it, it, the standard laser, it's a burn. You're burning these and sealing these little leaky spots. There's a newer laser technology called Micropulse, which I, I like a lot. It doesn't leave the scars like the old laser used to and seems to work just as well. Now, for proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the laser treatment, it, we call it panretinal, meaning total retinal, laser photocoagulation, PRP. And that's done in the periphery more. And it's a lot heavier laser. It's a little more uncomfortable, kind of hurts a little bit sometimes. But that is to help prevent and control bleeding, actual bleeding. Now, once bleeding actually occurs, prior to five years ago, the only thing we had was basically either time, sometimes it would clear on its own, or surgery, take you to the operating room and do a vitrectomy and remove the vitreous jelly in the back of the eye that's holding all the blood. Nowadays, what we do is inject the eyes. Well, one of the, we've found there's a growth factor that's involved in diabetic retinopathy called vascular endothelial growth factor. And there's several drugs that are anti-vascular endothelial growth factor or anti-VEGF, V-E-G-F. And one of them is on the market called Avastin. Um, and it's a drug and we inject it into the eye. And there have been, uh, there, I've been doing this for five years. Well, through clinical trials and studies have actually shown now that doing injections of these drugs in the eye is a really good thing, which is something I figured out five years ago, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so the studies now show that doing these injections of Avastin in the eye or the other product is Lucentis. They're both by the same company. Um, in conjunction with laser, you, you get kind of a one plus one equals three. You get a much better outcome than you would with laser alone or with the injection alone. So uh, I have a fair number of patients where they are routinely getting these injections in their eye. Now, it, it, this really is an injection into the eye. It's the you know classic needle in the eye thing, which kind of has a bad name from an old nursery rhyme. What is it? So anyway, the, I mean, these are injections in, right, of medications right into the eye, into the side white of the eye. Um, and, you know, there's the old nursery rhyme, you know, was it? Um, Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Well, turns out sticking a needle in your eye is a really pretty good thing to do. We numb up the eye. It really doesn't hurt. People feel it a little bit, maybe a little pressure, but it usually does not hurt. And, and this drug has been, uh, it's revolutionized how we take care of diabetic retinopathy now. It's good for both proliferative retinopathy and background diabetic retinopathy. The downside is the drug doesn't last very long and people typically need repetitive injections. Um, along with 
uh, injecting Avastin in the eye, I've been also injecting steroids in the eye for quite some time. And it turns out steroids in the eye are also very, very beneficial in diabetic retinopathy. And some of the newest things for treating diabetic retinopathy now are little implants that slowly release steroids over a period of time. And several of these are in phase three clinical trial. Um, a couple of them are on the market for, in, for other indications, um, which means that we can use it in diabetics, but insurance companies won't pay for it yet. So the clinical trials are moving along, and once they get approved by the FDA, then I think insurance companies will be required to pay for these drug delivery systems, these drug delivery devices that slowly release steroids. These devices, um, there's basically three different ones for three different types of steroids. Two of them are currently on the market for other other indications. They're not cheap, though. They're like $1,800 to $2,000 in injection. Of course, one of these, well, one of them lasts about four to six months, there's one that's in phase three clinical trial that looks like it lasts two years. So if you can get one of these to last two years, it might not be a bad thing. They do have some issues about inducing glaucoma in a small number of patients and some other and inducing cataracts too. So there's there's no free lunch. Um, there's also, as speaking of new research going on in diabetic retinopathy, diabetic retinopathy, the back of the eye is filled with a vitreous gel. And that gel alters oxygen and how oxygen flows in the back of the eye. And if you can remove the gel, that actually improves the oxygenation of the retina and the health of the retina and helps to prevent diabetic retinopathy from getting worse. There's a, there's a molecule that is a couple of different molecules that have been developed to help liquefy that vitreous jelly so that it is no longer in contact with the retina. And there's some data out that shows that by doing this, and this is another injection of a medicine or a drug into the eye, it liquefies the vitreous and seems to decrease the incidence of diabetic retinopathy and or improve diabetic retinopathy. So there's some interesting uh, research going on in that field. And so basically most of the research that's probably the closest to being in the clinic are these drug delivery systems that are going to be releasing steroids slowly over time, over a prolonged period of time, and this other uh, drug that dissolves the vitreous. There were some um, some other drugs that were in the pipeline that didn't get approved by the FDA, PKC inhibitors, um, but there's still some work going along in that path. And then last but not least, one of the other areas of research uh, that is partly available is telemedicine, and that's basically... Uh, the simplest way of thinking about this is you can put a camera in a diabetes doctor's office, an endocrinologist's office, and teach a nurse how to take pictures with this camera through a pupil that's not dilated. That's the real trick. And then you can, you can basically email or Internet these images to an ophthalmologist to review these, and it's a really nice way to kind of screen people for diabetic retinopathy without having to go through a full eye exam. None of these screening techniques are 100% at this point, and there's still a lot of work going on with that. But that's one of the other areas of research, particularly as our imaging technology is getting better. And why don't we just why don't we open it up to um, discussion then? Questions? Okay, I'm gonna. I have a microphone, so please raise your hand, and we'll come around and answer questions. Okay. You mentioned that uh, 
some patients need repetitive uh, injections. Uh, how often? How often should the injections be done? And it depends on how well the patient responds to each injection. Uh, there's one study that says every three weeks. So it can be a lot. Um, I basically do it, I do it and look at and see what kind of response my patient gets. And if we get the diabetic retinopathy under control, then I stop doing it and I monitor them. And if the diabetic retinopathy starts to worsen again six months later, a year later, we go back to it again. I have a couple related questions. Uh, number one, what symptoms do the patients oh. uh, manifest uh, for diabetic retinopathy? And also, does, is it possible or how frequently is the, is the patient uh, afflicted with both diabetic retinopathy and macular degeneration? Ah, two very good questions. One is, what are the symptoms of diabetic retinopathy? Um, I, guess, I guess the first part of that is um, anybody with diabetes should be having annual dilated eye exams. Generally speaking, the ophthalmologist or retina person will see the diabetic retinopathy going on before you even start having symptoms. That's when you want it. You want to catch it before you have symptoms. Once you have symptoms, you're behind the eight ball. Um, so the symptoms for proliferative diabetic retinopathy, that's the new blood vessel growth, those blood vessels can grow all over the place in the back of the eye, and there can be no symptoms at all until they break and bleed, which can be fairly cataclysmic. Uh, the hemorrhage in the eye can begin just as a few floaters, a few little black spots that's kind of swishing around. So any diabetic that has new floaters, you've got to get in and get checked to see if it's proliferative diabetic retinopathy that's about to bust loose on you. Um, or, unfortunately, with proliferative diabetic retinopathy, it's not uncommon. A patient wakes up in the morning and, boom, they don't see anything out of the eye. It's sudden. And that's why it's so, so, so important for everybody with diabetes to get at least annual dilated eye exams by an ophthalmologist or a retina surgeon. The other symptom, because we have two manifestations of the diabetic retinopathy, proliferative and background. But background diabetic retinopathy is, is a little, it, it gives you a little bit more of a warning. Um, and it usually causes some central blur in the vision. And that's about it, but, and it, which is progressively worsening. But with background diabetic retinopathy, you don't wake up one day blind like you can with proliferative. So background diabetic retinopathy is basically a central blurred vision, sometimes a little distortion in the vision. Now, the, the other question about um, macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy, they're, they're kind of two different critters. And at one time, we actually thought that diabetes, because there was a period where we felt like we were we rarely saw macular degeneration in diabetics. Well, we're seeing that more and more as, as folks are living longer. Um, and the latest studies show that there really is no interaction, protective, good or bad or otherwise. And so it's basically, you know, you know the incidence of macular degeneration in 70-year-olds is about 20, 25%. And so if you're a diabetic that has lived to be 75 years old, there's a 25% you're going to get macular degeneration as well. And it's a totally different, different critter. Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to know about the um, little loopy lights that you can see after you've had a laser treatment and how, do, how long does that last and how can you get rid of it? Loopy lights. Are they little flickers of light? Well, like, or is it a swirl? It's kind of like ropey. Ropey? Mm -hmm. But it's I've, lights? It's not floaters? 
No, it's not floaters. Oh. It's a reaction from the uh, from the, the laser. laser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the retinas. The 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 question is different lighting lights and phenomena that you can notice at times, particularly after a laser treatment. Um, the retina is a real dumb tissue. All it knows how to do is make light. It doesn't have pain fibers. It doesn't have cold fibers or touch or anything. You can cut it half in two, no pain. You just go blind, but no pain. So the retina, I mean, the retina's job is to make uh, light signals for the brain to interpret. Um, you know, basically it's a phototransducer. It turns light energy into electrical energy. So if you do anything mechanical to the retina, it can make different types of lights. One of the types of lights that we worry about the most are real brief little flickers of light, like little flash bulbs going off. That usually means that there is traction on the retina. The vitreous jelly is pulling on the retina. And as long as it doesn't pull a tear in the retina, you're okay, but you've got to get in and get it checked to be certain because you can't tell benign flashes of light from malignant or bad flashes of light. Um, laser treatments, particularly the panretinal laser photocoagulation, which is the heavier laser treatments in the periphery, it's, it's a very, generally it's a very heavy laser, and it can stimulate the retina to cause various types of lightning phenomena too. Usually settles down within a few weeks though, but if it's, if it's going on for a long period of time, it could be some other traction on the retina or something else. But the laser, you know, it, it, the laser is thermal, and it's burning the retina, and with that it's mechanically stimulating the retina too. Good morning. I have a, my, my diabetes is running, I think it's type 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 1. Type 1? Mm-hmm. And I keep my blood sugar between 80 and 100. And I'm not doing too bad. Should I have it operated on or what? I had glaucoma and cataracts. Ah. Should I operate on it or let it go? The... Um well, the, the, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you sound like you have good control of your blood sugar. That helps put the odds in your favor for maintaining good vision throughout your life. That's good. Keep, keep up the good work. The issue about how to deal with glaucoma and cataracts in the face of diabetes, if there's active diabetic retinopathy going on, you should get that under control with these injections or lasers first and then do the cataract surgery. There have been plenty of studies that have shown that cataract surgery can actually exacerbate or worsen the diabetic retinopathy. And it's not too terribly uncommon. Somebody develops a bad cataract. That actually prevents people like me from ad- adequately seeing and examining the retina. Get the cataract taken off. Now I have a clear view, and there's bad diabetic retinopathy going on in the back, and we're behind the eight ball and scrambling to try to make it better and work hard to make it better. So if there's any diabetic retinopathy... You need to get that treated first and then get the cataract done. If there is no diabetic retinopathy, now if you're a type 1, and I can tell you you're over 20, <laughs> chances are you do have some, you know, there's 98% chance you've got some diabetic retinopathy. You just want to make sure that that's under control before going ahead with cataract surgery. I've been a type 1 for 52 years. Wow. Great. I've had a laser for about the last 35 years. I have not had a hemorrhage, at least not that I've been aware of, for the last couple of years. The injection to help liquefy the vitreous, is that something I should consider? Because there's a lot of, a lot of scar tissue on that, that retina. Right. Well, at the moment, uh, it's under clinical trial. It's not, 
released by the FDA. But the way I'm hearing the data and the FDA is reviewing the data, it may be released within the next year or two. Um, and if it is, it might be something to consider for you, yes. Okay, this will be our last question. Dr. Small, um, I don't have that, but I've had seven eye, oper eye operations on my eyes. Uh, the muscles are tied, and I've lost my vision once, and I'm, I've only had diabetes six months, hmm. and Dr. Lado told me, my ophthalmologist told me that I could not, I would not... Um, develop that that soon. So I don't know. I, I'm, a, I'm on the pill. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you don't need to, the, the issue, and the issue really is what is the incidence and probability of developing diabetic retinopathy given the duration of being diagnosed with diabetes? And certainly, the longer you have diabetes, the more likely you will develop diabetic retinopathy. Um, the data, if, you, if you're a newly diagnosed diabetic and you've been seeing your internist regularly and kind of been being checked for diabetes, because one of the problems is, like my childhood buddy back in New Orleans, um, he used to go out hunting and shooting and stuff out in the swamps of Louisiana, and one day he noticed he couldn't, you know, he's missing the ducks, and he didn't like that. So he went into the doctor, and you know his retina's doctor found diabetic retinopathy all over the place, and he'd probably had diabetes for ten years and never knew it. That's what I'm saying. Thirty percent of Americans are undiagnosed. Well, thirty percent of diabetics don't even know they have it. So most people, by the time they get diagnosed, they've probably have already had it for a while, depending on how vigilant they are with getting follow-ups with their internists and routine blood work, et cetera. Um, so if you've been, if I assume that you've been getting at least annual physicals then this would be truly a newly diagnosed diabetes. So, the, yeah, the probability of you having diabetic retinopathy within the next five years is, you know, it's 5%. It's pretty low, maybe 10%. So he's right in that regard. But, you know, the biggest problem is most people have already, most people have already had diabetes for some unknown period of time before they're actually diagnosed. So you should be fine for quite a while, actually. But you know, you just need you need to be vigilant. You don't need to be f scared. You need to be proactive. You know, you need to take control of the situation, and make sure you get good dilated eye exams at least once a year, just to. Oh, good. You're you're going to be on top of it. You'll be fine. The people, the people who most people that lose their vision and go blind from diabetic retinopathy. You know, or folks that kind of weren't taking care of themselves, you know, weren't going in for their annual physicals, and uh, it just sneaks up and bites them one day. And uh, once once this thing is already rolling, it's a snowball going downhill. It's hard to stop, and it's hard to control, and it's a battle. So, you know, I don't worry so much about folks like yourself that are going in for your routine physicals, your routine eye exams, getting things monitored and taken care of. That's really, really important. So you got to, like I said, don't be afraid, but be proactive and and take control of this.
Thanks so much, Dr. Small. And we're just going to take a little five-minute break. Just get up and stretch and back here in five minutes. Okie dokie. Thanks. <laughs> 